beat Usu. But I don't know if I don't know if he, I don't know if he will. I don't know if he'll be able to get himself in the mental. I'm hearing there's going to be big changes. There's going to be big changes with his uh, with his with his training team. I don't know how that's going to pan out. I think Rob McCracken, if he's listened to and he's able to do what he does without people interfering, is one of the best trainers in the world. Is that an important point, Carl? Because a lot of the critics just went straight for Rob McCracken, didn't they, online? Yeah, and how many people have you got sticking red in the corner? How many people hanging around the changing rooms? How many people are in, the, in the camp yeah. blowing down his ear off, AJ's ear off? Yeah. And Rob, Rob's respectful of people, but listen, he's, he's the boss. He should be the one giving instructions. But sometimes I feel that, yes, that's not the case. But he won't stay where he's not wanted. But hopefully, hopefully um, AJ realises that what he needs to do is downsize a little bit, go back to basics. And remember, remember when all his best performances came in, when he found up the canvas to beat in Pitchka, who was in his corner, who was he listening to? Uh, he lost to Ruiz, but he won the rematch against Ruiz. He just put in a stink of a performance against the top five. Don't try and outbox someone like Alexander Usi. That'd be like me trying to outbox, probably not the same, but a little bit similar. When I, when I fought Lucian Butte, I was never going to try and stand the box and move around it and uh, try and outbox him and that No chance, because he was taller than me. He could punch a bit, it's an awful tough So I went at him, stuck it on him, bagged him up, fucking smashed him to the Battered him instead, eh? That's how you do it. Yeah. Now, if you've got height and reach and weight advantage on somebody who's better than you, technically. Hey, you know what time it is, everyone, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where. We're still trying to find G14, wherever and whoever they are. You know, oh, poor old AJ, but that's for another episode, another time. Maybe I'll do that as a Christmas special for you. But you know what time it is. And, you know, I had to discuss the return of the conquering warrior. No, not Rocky Fielding. Um, you know, Dan Aziz um, thought, thought Saturday night's card was, was fascinating. I'm going to start by being honest about Sky. I have no idea what the hell's going on in Sky Towers. I, d I don't know what the strategy is and I don't know what the plan is. What I do know is I'm here for this because it's, it's kind of hodgepodge matchmaking, but it's competitive matchmaking. That's the difference. It's, these are fights where you're like, I don't necessarily know who's going to win. And we've had a fair few upsets on Sky. So credit where credit's due, this is what we wanted. It's almost just Darwinian, isn't it? It's Let's just put a load of English boxers together who are kind of okay to good, with some with the potential to be even better, and let's see where we land. And can someone please confirm this? Have In the, in the kind of boxer era, have Sky put on a male world title fight yet? Because it doesn't feel like they've put on a male world title fight. Um, I know we did the... We've done it for the, for the women, for sure, because Natasha Jonas has had a fantastic year. But I don't think they've put on a male world title fight yet. And here we are, like a year and a bit in. So you're like, wow. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get it. And maybe this is where boxing should be going. And we're just going to get um, the whole survival of the fittest approach to this. And to be honest, I'm 100% here for that. But let's talk about the product from Saturday. Um, I'm going to start with Dan because that's kind of where my interest was. So when the fielding fight was announced, my first question was, you know, wh where's Rocky fielding in life? I'm not, 
I could be a Rocky Fielding hater and bring up the whole stag due to New York to fight Canelo stuff. But deep down, Rocky Fielding is kind of what you want in boxing. He's a lad who boxes as an amateur, ABA finals. I think he might have boxed for England a couple of times against Ireland. Did everything the right way. One prize fighter, won all the kind of trinkets working his way up. Fought whoever he had to fought, had to fight, sorry. And so Rocky Fielding in boxing, you'd call him just a good, honest pro. Good guy. You know, I've met him once or twice. Good guy, solid guy. But I always wondered, once you get that Canelo money and you're able to to kind of pay off a house, get a house in Dubai, uh, make sure your kids are okay, get some businesses, how hungry are you? You've kind of proved all the doubt was wrong by that point. You know, when people said Rocky wouldn't win prize fighter all the way through to fighting Canelo, you've kind of lived your dream. So what's left? And so when that was announced that Dan was going to fight Rocky, I was like, ooh. Either Rocky's just going to come out gunslinging and going, I've got nothing to lose, my life is set. Or we were just going to get Rocky coming for a payday. And I didn't know which version we were going to get until the weigh-in. And I saw him on the scales and I went, he doesn't look like he's trained. Don't know who you hold accountable to that. I think he was with Jamie Moore and Travis again. How on earth he was allowed to come in that condition, I don't know. And when you saw the contrast in physique between him and Dan, and you're like, I don't know if Rocky's got the kind of James Tony skill set that will offset the physicality that Dan brings. So before that fight, I thought, oh, this is going to be a comfortable win for Dan. And it, so the question for me then moved on to, is Dan going to win? To Actually, what's Dan going to show us? You know, what progression are we going to see between, you know, the Reese Cartwright fight? God, I hope that was the right one. Uh, no, Reese, Shakan, and then now. If I haven't got that in the right order, God strike me down. I wanted to see what that, that line of progression was. Because, like I said, I care about Dan's career because Dan's a friend. Dan's a friend. And Dan's a guy I was shouting out from his amateur days. And I said to people, this guy's going to be something. He's He's got that thing you can't explain. That... I will not get, I will not be broken. And I saw that all through the amateurs, even with the fights against guys like Ashley Vanzi, uh, Dennis Kalfer, all these sorts of guys in the ams. And Dan just showed he had that toughness. So when, when the fight happened, if you remember, one of the first moves Rocky made was like this kind of sweeping check hook. And I thought, please tell me that's not what the game plan is. The game plan can't be um, shuffle, shuffle, check hook. Because he didn't even throw the check hook properly. The, the point of a check hook is it's a left hook at a shifting angle, right? And it's designed to get you either out the corner or away from the ropes. Rocky just threw it and saw sort of slumped on the ropes. And I don't know if the plan was to soak up loads of punishment and hope Dan tires down the stretch. Because if you look at Dan's physique, you're like, I don't know if he can do 12 rounds boxing the way he does. Oh, but he can. Oh, he really, really can. And people don't understand that because, yes, Dan looks big. But if you actually break it down, Dan's got quite long arms and legs. So that kind of overheating doesn't happen because he's got quite a large surface area to mass ratio relative to someone like a Rocky Fielding, who's quite boxy and quite... Uh, probably with a longer torso. And these things are important at that level where 1% or 2% make a difference. So it's hard for Dan to get tired, really. If he's done his work, it's hard for him to get tired because his body looks efficient 
for what he's actually set, setting himself up to do. So Rocky tries that, that check. I'm like, oh God, this isn't going to be good. And at no point in the first two rounds does Rocky Fielding try and impose himself physically. You got the height advantage. You may have a slight reach advantage, but that's debatable. But you didn't try and impose yourself. You didn't try and say, I've been at this level longer than you. I'm, I'm going to let you know that you're in for a fight tonight. Um, a couple of times he tried to slide, slide and throw an uppercut. It just wasn't working because Dan was the guy in the ring with a point to prove. And anyone that followed my tweets will tell you, it got to a point I was like, I don't think Rocky wants to be here. This is looking very dangerous for him because not only was he looking like he was going to lose easily, but it looked like Dan was beating the fight out of him. And I think by round two, I tweeted something like, you know, Rocky's digging into this overdraft. Now, Rocky's fighting in round two like he should be in round nine. This ain't going to go long. And Dan was relentless. And, and this is where you got to praise Dan. Because if you go back to the guys like Rich Harrison and so on and so forth, Dan always boxed as if he was unsure in himself. You know, what should I be doing in this situation? And not a criticism at all, but I'd always talk to Dan about don't wait for the perfect picture. Sometimes you will create that perfect picture. And that's what he's starting to do now. So you know, if you look at what he does, strong jab, sharp double jab, get the guy to the ropes, and then he yeah, head position for the right uppercut, shift it, shift that head to the left now, left hook, left uppercut, come back again, right uppercut, bouncing Fielding's head left, right, and center. Ah, punishing him with the jab, Rocky's head was snapping back. And you kind of felt for Rocky, because like I said, that Rocky Fielding story is a great boxing story. And Rocky, much like Jose Burton, a guy that I'd happily sit down and have a pint with. Nice people. Um, you know, he did do the thing in lockdown where <laughs> he was going a bit buck wild pre-lockdown, but maybe he knew what we all should have known. So Dan, so Dan's pinging him. And what Dan's doing is not easy, by the way, and it's rare you see British guys do that. He's, he's punch picking. That's what I really enjoyed about watching Dan. You know, he was targeting the body and you saw Rocky's left side redden from the second and third round. It was just going super red. And I was like, oh, that's got to hurt. And once you, got, once you got Rocky thinking about the body, then the uppercuts started to rein in. And like, that's all strategic. If I get you thinking about downstairs, you know, you're now, you're now torn. Like, what do I protect, downstairs or upstairs? And Rocky couldn't do both. The tactics were all wrong. Like, you didn't have to be on the ropes. So what, whatever Jamie Moore and Nigel Travis had planned, I don't know. Maybe they knew he wasn't fit enough and he just had to soak it up and hope Dan got tired. I don't know. But here's what I do know. The punishment he took, and it, Matt, Matt Maxton said something in commentary. He said, these aren't the sort of shots that bust you up. I was like, no, no, they really, really are. They're not Deontay Wilder type shots, no but they're like Beterbiev-type shots. I'm not saying Dan is Beterbiev, but I'm saying they're Beterbiev-type shots that even the ones that look like taps are taking something out of you. And because of that, you get this terror. Now, not literal terror, but metaphorical terror, where you're like, God, this is what it's going to be like for the whole fight. And you start to, you start to divert energy from fighting to managing your emotions. This happens in the ring. You know, you get, you're like, oh God, this is, this is tough. And that's what Dan did to Rocky. 
round after round, beat him down. Beat him down. And I thought actually the Rocky's corner were merciful and throwing the towel in. Probably could have done it around before. But at least they preserved some life in him in case he wants to fight again. And I'm not against Rocky Fielding fighting again, by the way. If you can find an entertaining fight, why not? Do I want to see him pursuing titles? I think he's done with that. But why not an exhibition? You could get someone like a Kessler out. Or who else has recently retired around that weight? That would be a good fight. I'll leave that to you guys to, to, to figure out. I think Kovalev might be a bit too much, but something like that for Rocky. Let Rocky, let Rocky go out on his own terms. He shouldn't go out on that defeat. But like I said, loved what I saw with Dan. I now think that Dan's, Dan's pressure on the ropes is the best in this country right now. The accuracy, the precision. You know, I know people say, ah, oh, he, was, he was reckless with the head. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. That's how old timers used to fight head to head. He wasn't banging his head into Rocky. I mean, he got his head in gently, but once it was on there, I mean, he used it for leverage. Rocky had the same opportunity to do the same thing if he wanted to. But that's how the old timers used to operate. So I'm not necessarily against that. Maybe he could open his feet a bit and switch angles and that might pull the head out a little bit. But why should he have to do that? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's not dirty and it's, that's not a foul. Like you're allowed to be head to head. You're just not allowed to headbutt. And he didn't headbutt. But Dan's on the rope game. And we saw it with Jose Burton kind of embryonically. And we saw little bits of Buddy McGirt in the Reese Cartwright fight. And this was a fight where we started to see it all come together. You know, you're seeing Dan be very careful that no counter left hooks can catch him out. No counter right hands can catch him out. He's defensively sound. He's defensively responsible. Doesn't mean he can't get hit. And at higher levels, you know, he may be a bit more vulnerable. But when he's got that double jab to the ropes and he's got that rhythm, not much you can do. The guy's strong as hell. He's fit as hell. Weight in both hands. And, you know, I know Dan will listen to this and go, yeah, he's going to say, but there's a but coming. I know, till, till I know there's a but coming. And there is. And this is what I want to see. And this is where Buddy McGirt adds value for me. It's what I call the mid game, the mid ring game. Dan's got enough pop in his shots that he can drop you in the middle of the ring. He put you down in the middle of the ring. He doesn't necessarily have to have you against the ropes. I think sometimes actually, because he's got someone against the ropes, it takes some of the power out the shot because you can just lean back on the ropes and go, right, they're going to take all the weight. Perfect. The evolution for me when it comes to Dan tactically is, can he get that knockout in the middle of the ring? Can he double jab? Double jab his way to the middle of the ring, dip under a counter and just boom a left hook over, put someone over. So I think, and I think that's coming by the way. I think with Dan, that's coming. Like that, that, that mid-ring game, I think is the next evolution. Because what he has done is, if we go from the Hosea Burton fight, just in terms of the number of times he moves per round, the number of shots he throws per round, he's up about 10 or 15% in 12 months. And that's a big difference. And he's got this thing now, and I love this about Dan, where he's got the acceleration. When he hears the 10-second the clapper, just puts his foot on the accelerator. So you go back to the ring tired. 
You got back to the ring tired and you're like, God, that hurt. And you're relieved to hear the bell. And he's Dan goes back to the ring relaxed. And actually, does that play on the judge's mind? I hope it does. But you're seeing all of these little things coming together. And this is what happens when you go out and educate yourself. And the time he spent in LA with Kovalev, the time he spent in Montreal with Quebec, in, in, let me start again, the time he spent in Montreal with Baturbiev, the initial work with Buddy McGirt, and now the work he's doing with Buddy now, all valuable. And I love the fact that he's applying it. So I'm looking forward to seeing another another 10% or 15% uplifting work rate. I think it can happen. Tweaking the decision-making, which can happen. Because there's some, there's, there's some stuff where I was like, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? You've made the decision in your head that this guy's not going to hurt you. Why are you waiting? Just, just boom a big straight right over and just let him know. Because Rocky was holding that left low in mid-ring. And that's why the mid-ring game can be important sometimes because that's where more opportunities are. You're not going to have your hands down when you're against the ropes. So he, there were more openings actually in mid-ring than there were against the ropes. But I thought Dan was good. Um, delighted for him. I thought that's his most complete performance. Um, really impressed. Kind of surprised to see Mark Gillespie in the corner. Um, strange one, right? Like you're, you're the guy that brought Josh Boatsy to the public's attention and now you're with Dan who in theory is now a rival so that that yeah I don't really understand the inner workings of that I'm not going to delve too deep into that what I will say is man shouts out to Brian O'Shaughnessy we hope to see you back on the circuit soon and that's just me saying that as someone who who knows that Brian still you know he's still got a good heart and passion for the game and hopefully we see him soon um but in terms of the Mark Gillespie thing, yeah, that felt a bit strange. I'm not going to be mad that he was taking the selfies and looking happy, you know, for the memory bank. You know, you, you put the work in on the night. Why not get in the pictures? But yeah, I wonder what Josh thought of that. But overall, happy for Dan. Delighted for him. And onwards and upwards for Dan because, you know, 175 is coming to that point where guys at Baturbi are kind of on their way out. And I don't say that disrespectfully. And so the opportunities will open up as those belts scatter. So I'd like to see Dan start positioning himself and Sky should start positioning Dan for one of those world title shots when they come, when they come around because there are no real killers out there apart from Baturbiev right now. You know, Kovalev's old. Bivol's not a killer. He's a good boxer, but he's not a killer. So there's an opportunity there if someone wants to grasp it. Yeah, but yeah, I'm just happy. Uh, let me just let the emotion wash over. We should also talk about Chris Billum-Smith because I think I might have been one of the first outlets to be talking about Chris Billum-Smith too. It's mad to think I've known Chris Billum-Smith for about seven years. I guess mad. And I remember him, um, it's probably the first time I met Shane as well. I know the second time I met Shane. And yeah, he was in camp with, with David so yeah, so the first time I met Chris, it was me, Chris, Shane, Stevie Broughton, uh, David Hay, obviously. Wadi Camacho was there and I was there with JP. And we just got on from that. I just got a lot of time from him. He's such a nice guy. So like, his nickname, The Gentleman's Perfect. He's just a good guy. A guy, like I said, you can have a drink with. Guy you can sit down and have a good chat with. All of that. And he... He always had interests beyond boxing. So he'll be that sort of person 
if he does retire at some point, I should say when he does retire at some point, don't be surprised if he doesn't do much in boxing or if he works in boxing and something else. He He's just got that about him where not necessarily that he speaks with a loud voice, but he speaks with authority and he's calm and he's all these good things. And I genuinely believe that he is Shane's greatest work because he took a guy who had always been there or thereabouts. I think he was 2014 ABA runner-up. Interestingly enough, he lost to Jack Massey in the final. So he's always been there or thereabouts. If he was around now, would he get into GB? I think so. Would he have gone to the 2020 Olympics? Probably. But back then, you know, it was, it was a harder division to win. And, you know, that sort of time, that was when Ricardo Slew, a good friend of mine, was going through the circuit as well. It was it was competitive. You had Rick, Chris Smith, Jack Massey, although they may have been 86. Uh, you also had Lawrence. And so it was really competitive. And Chris was in that conversation with guys like Biola Kudus, Greg Bride, all those guys. But would always seem to fall short or would always end up being injured or something. And Shane seemed to have just fixed all of that and given Chris that iron will or maybe just unlocked the iron will in Chris. Because what Chris does isn't, it's not fancy, but he's going to beat you up. He's got a similar mindset to Dan Aziz in that sense of it's, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be your problem. Now you find a way to figure it out. And the only person who really did was Richard Riakpo. And that's because like, he's got power from the gods, if we're being honest. He has power from the gods. And so Chris fights the, the cost, the cost of, God, I can't get this one right. And I don't even know how to say the surname, so I'm not going to say it. And yes, he got rocked by a guy who was coming up in weight. But that's generally how Chris works. Like Chris, Chris isn't going to pitch a shutout. Chris isn't a 120 to 108 sort of guy. And even he would admit that. But he's a get the job done sort of guy. And I think once he kind of got settled into the fight, worked out which weapons he was going to use, it was just a matter of time. Chris was bigger, was stronger more effective when they were up close and just established his dominance and the stoppage when it came was brutal absolutely brutal and it was a kind of knockout that happens and and what was scary about it was the way that the guy dropped because he dropped and all his weight landed almost in like a perfect line perpendicular to the ring and so he got stuck over his I think it was his right knee his weight got stuck over his right knee and then that kind of gave out and he fell to the floor so that's why it looked like he went down in stages because as his weight dropped he found this perfect balance point on his knee and then his knee just couldn't take it and shot out and I was like oh that's a horrible one that lets you know that the lights were out completely out didn't stagger down none of that the lights were out completely and that's the beauty of Chris Bidham Smith He'll always be vulnerable in a fight. But you always get the impression he'll find a way to come back. That's for me the definition of a warrior. Like you can put Chris in 50-50 fights or 60-40 fights against him and still believe that he'll find a way to win. And I thought that was a good performance. 
What's his real level? Should he be fighting for a world title? I think he should. Because Chris isn't going to get... There isn't headroom for Chris to grow into because Chris is in his 30s now and he's a family man and he's, you know, he's settled. So where's the headroom? There probably isn't. It's just fine-tuning now and just making sure that he can be the best version of himself consistently. I, I would love to see him fight for the IBF. I think he deserves it. I'd like to see him fight for that first and then start to chase those money fights, the Reactpo rematch. A fight with Jack Massey would have been good. Um, I think those two would deliver fight of the year because they kind of have those same characteristics of I'll find a way to win. It may not be pretty. It may not be Pernell Whitaker, but it'll be entertaining. So yeah, I'd like to see Chris do that. I'd like to see the Chamberlain rematch at some point, but Isaac has to get rounds in first. He has to get rounds in experience and, you know, make his mistakes kind of in the shadows and then come back for that rematch because Isaac's got the tools, but sometimes I think you need to, like I said earlier, right? You've got to find a way of being the best version of yourself every time you walk into that ring. But yeah, super happy for Chris Billum-Smith. Like I said, such a good guy. Such a good guy. And you wish boxing had more of more of those guys, more Chris Billum-Smiths. And it would be a far better sport for it. Um, who else fought? Uh, just, just touch on Steve Robinson against Nick Campbell quickly because that was what I call the loser leaves town sort of fight. Uh, I think Sky have realised you can't carry too many of these sorts of characters, you know, on, on a card. You just can't. And those who know Steve Robinson from the amateurs know that he was always vulnerable. You know, you may not knock him out, but you can get at him. I think something similar with Nick Campbell. Nick came to the sport relatively late too, and he was kind of in that same. He was in that same bracket, but. He had played rugby for Glasgow Warriors and Jersey Reds, and that's nothing to be sniffed at. That's a, that's, that's a hard, attritional level of rugby to be playing, so kudos to him. But just, he, they both looked like guys who took up boxing late. I want to be respectful and say it was a quarter of a degree above a white-collar fight. Now, whether Sky want to continue to do that on their platform, I don't know. But that was definitely something above a white collar fight. So I'll be honest, when I, when I heard he had signed with Sky, and I said to the people, the powers that be, I said, why? It, it didn't make sense. Like, it, if you were going to pick a list of people to sign, that didn't make any sense. Nick Campbell did because Nick had boxed in the GB Championship, right? But he'd kind of come through the Scotland route. And I don't imagine... There are many guys his size who aren't doing strongman. So he's probably one of three other people. Maybe with Jay McFarlane or someone like that. So I could kind of get why you'd get Nick. Because you're like, let's take a gamble. And it's a presence in Scotland. Steve Robinson, no. Because he had lost his guys like Jamie Shakib and lost comfortably. You know, wasn't that much of a factor. But promoters get in people's ears and they, they get it that way. And I was like... Oh, no, he would get exposed at some point. And he, and he did. But give the guy credit. He's come back. Now, however he's done it, he's done it. It's not elegant. It's not pretty. You know, if you've got a good double jab and a backhand, you're probably going to beat him. But when you're on the last chance saloon, you know, you show character when you win. So I'm always going to tip my hat off to a guy like, a guy like Steve for doing that. What level can he get to? 
well, well, he can't fight a guy like Fraser Clark, even as inexperienced as Fraser is in the pros. You wouldn't want to do that. Could he fight Jamie Shakiva? TKV, as they call him in Sky? Yeah. He'd lose, but he could do that. I don't think it goes four rounds. So I don't know what you do with him from here on in because it's hard to find people he will look good against. And that's the dilemma Sky have. And I guess that's what they need to do with their rosters, work out who are the guys who are, who are, be- who are really hanging on and probably need to do some time in the small hall scene to rebuild their reputations and actually get some credible wins and performances. He might be one of them. And I'm not saying that to be disrespectful. I'm just saying for what the fans want to see on TV, yes, Steve Robinson's exciting, but you're not going to find many Nick Campbells who can kind of box at Steve Robinson's level. So I don't know what you do there. But we'll see. And I, I yeah, that, that, that's for people who, who are actually paid to make these decisions to, to work out. But yeah, I don't, outside of just a presence in the Northeast, I don't see how long he can stay on Sky. But I tell you someone who will stay on Sky for as long as they want, Caroline Dubois. If someone says to me, of all the picks you made on the New Age, which ones, you know, what are your top three? Caroline's probably number one. Because when I first mentioned Caroline, I can remember someone, someone sent a question, and this is mid-2016. And they said, who are the young up-and-coming prospects you should have your eye on? And I said, Daniel Dubois. And then I said, no, no, no. Just remember, he's got a sister coming through called Caroline. And Caroline may be the greatest boxing talent this country has. And I stand by that because that performance she delivered on Saturday, wow. Whew. You know, sometimes you, you, see, you see someone like an Ebony Bridges and whether she's taken the roids or not, I don't know. But you get the impression with Ebony Bridges that it's not natural, Right? And so she's able to produce those sorts of bulldozing performances, right? And whatever, credit to her. You know, that's what she's chosen to do. That's the path. Fine. Yeah, it's a bulldozing performance that can leave someone bloodied and bruised. And you go, oh, that was a war. And then you've got people like Katie Taylor who will just peck, 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 peck all their way to victory. And then you've got those handful of fighters like an Amanda Serrano, for example, who also maybe cooking with hot sauce. And they can, they can put you to sleep. Natasha Jonas, ladies like that, that can put you to sleep. And Caroline Dubois is in that category. But what makes her different is how intense she is with it. So, so let's just do two southpaws, Natasha Jonas, Caroline Dubois. I don't want to compare them as people because that's not fair. But stylistically, Tasha will come and she's cultured and she'll pick, pick. She'll have a little look. She'll, you know, I call her more classical Southpaw. You know, like an Antonio Tava. Classic Southpaw. Does all of those textbook Southpaw things amazingly well. The shots, all, you know I mean, all big green ticks for everything. Caroline's got that kind of Errol Spenceness to her. Or maybe a Southpaw version of Inoue, where she's almost figured out her perfect fight distance. And every hard shot comes from that distance. When she's up close, it's not the same. When she's further out, it's not the same. 
But in that sweet spot that she's identified, she takes your head off. And what we saw on Saturday was scary. Because, like, I've known Caroline since she was 12, 13. And I'd always look at her and wonder, what are you running from? What are you running towards? And I'd never understand because she was so intense and so good. It was the first time it occurred to me, maybe she just enjoys this. Maybe this is her dopamine hit. And on Saturday, it looked like she just enjoyed scrapping. She just enjoyed hitting people. And that put a smile on my face because I was like, there you go. There's someone who's just got the goods. She's got the goods. Um, horns of a dilemma. What do you do? You know, how, how long do you hold her back before she goes for a world title? Because all the people you expect to give her rounds probably can't give her rounds. So when do you put her up? Uh, good luck to the matchmakers because I don't know what the right answer to that is. I wouldn't be afraid to put her in with Katie Taylor. You know, if you're prepared to put her in a fight that she might lose, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be upset if she fought a Katie Taylor. I wouldn't, be a, I wouldn't be upset if she fought a Michaela Mayer. I think she wipes the floor with Michaela Mayer now. I think she puts Michaela Mayer to sleep. And, you know, people disagree with that, but when you're a right-handed southpaw and someone like Michaela Mayer is vulnerable to right hands, that's just night-night time. But yeah, massively supportive of Caroline Dubois right now. I think she's brilliant. I think she's a class act. I think she does everything right as a boxer. Do you know what? It would be wrong with me not to talk about the, the Corey Gibbs versus Jimmy first fight because what a disaster that was. So Corey Gibbs goes in against Jimmy first and to be honest, you're like, Jimmy will have a go, but Corey will just let his class show through, right? What was it, Nate Rounder? Jimmy first shouldn't have even been competitive in that fight. So imagine you lose a fight because your gum shield's a mess. I never got to the bottom of it, so I haven't seen the interview to understand what happened with the, with the gum shield. But when your gum shield's getting pinged out like that, it's clearly one that you bought from Sports Direct because it hasn't been custom fitted. It's not balanced. And also what it's not doing is it's not managing the impact. So the shots are affecting you a bit more. Because normally the, the dental ones tend to give you a bit more kind of shock absorption and they take a bit more of the impact away from the spine and the brain. Maybe it's a marginal benefit, but you need everything you can get in that fight. So to lose three points, you, I, don't, I think you sacked the corner. You, you sacked the corner because there were two questions for me. One, did they bring no mouth guards? Because normally what happens in boxing is you bring two mouth guards. I don't care if you're amateur or pro, you should have two mouth guards. You bring one to the gym, but on fight night, you bring two. Just in case one gets knocked into the crowd. And it's happened before. So the ref will look at you. And the thing is, if you're slick and you've got one ready, you're right. Straight back in and go. The referee's on your side. Anything that looks sloppy, because that's what the referee did. The referee said you're supposed to be professional because the ref understood you can't show up with, with a bullshit mouth guard, number one. Number two, you can't show up without a spare. And I was looking at this going, if your corner's that haphazard about mouth guards, what else are they haphazard about? And is that why your career has been stop-start because you've got the wrong people around you? 
I thought that was a really bad look for Corey Gibbs. And he, he paid an unbelievably heavy price because now you've got to rebuild. But at 41 years old, you've got to tip your hat off to, to Jimmy first. You've got to give him his respect. Because, okay, he didn't, he didn't set the world on fire. And he, you know, he looked like a, a guy who was tough, durable, but didn't look like a guy who could you know, punch a hole in a wall, for example. And so Corey Gibbs will be kicking himself that that's the defeat he took. And, you know, like he'd been pushed heavily by boxer and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, he he got let down by his corner. That was, that was poor. That was really, 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 really poor. Unbelievably poor. And so that's a lesson for everyone, man. Always make sure you got your spares. This is the thing as well that, that, that actually I didn't even talk about when it comes to Dan. This is what I like about Dan. Dan has a fight week checklist. And all he does is he works to that checklist. Because what that does is it gives you confidence. I don't know why people don't do this more often. Even I have a checklist. So if I'm traveling with work, for example, I have a completely separate bag that has everything I need for work. So in that bag, I can pack my toothbrush, I can pack the toothpaste, I can pack the shower jar, I can pack everything I need, my suits, my shirts, my shoes, excuse me, my gym stuff, um, boxing stuff, all that stuff I just pack. I can have that suitcase locked up for a couple of days if I need to while I just go about my business because I've got everything in parallel. But what that means is when I wake up to travel, I just grab the suitcase and go. But inside that suitcase is a checklist. It says, yeah, everything's in here. Preparation gives you confidence. Whether it's sport, life, it doesn't matter. Preparation gives you confidence. And in Corey Gibbs's case, it wasn't there. And he paid a heavy price for that. But yeah, in terms of the rest of the card, I think it was guys like Michael McKinson, your South Coast legends. So Michael McKinson, Lee Cutler, those sorts of guys got their wins. Congratulations to them. Would like to see McKinson rematch Chris Congo. Uh, then we can see what Ben Davidson's been doing behind the scenes. Uh, what else has been happening? Uh, overall, how would you describe that card? It's a good go-home card, right? It's just a good go-home card. Feel-good story. Chris Smith gets to fight at home. Now he can talk about stadium fight in the summer, which I think is awesome. Um, gave a bit of profile to a guy like Lee Cutler, and hopefully he can go onwards and upwards. Michael McKinson kept his momentum. And then we saw the class of Daniel Dubois, not Dan, Caroline Dubois and Dan Aziz. So... Overall, decent card. Remember, that's free to air. So, you know, it's not like, imagine having to pay $7.99 on zone for that. You'd be fuming. But when it's free to air with your Sky subscription, it's a good card because you can see where things are heading. And you know for sure Caroline Dubois will get to world level. And you feel the same about Dan and Chris. So that's three people we expect to see fight for world titles on one card. And I think that's a good sign. Uh, should we talk about January 21st, uh, the Eubank versus Liam Smith undercard. Oh, wow. So as chief support, we're going to get Richard Riakpour versus Christoph Glavatsky. Um, so that will be a benchmark opponent, right, for, for Lawrence. So we'll be able to compare those two. Lawrence stopped him in six, so we'll see what Richard does. And then we have the more intriguing one, the one that... Wow, it doesn't make much sense, does it? So you've got Jack Massey fighting Joseph Parker. And you pause and you go, how the hell has this happened? 
Now, and I've said this to the guys at Sky, absolutely bonkers matchmaking, but I'm 100% here for this. Like, that card suddenly looks compelling, right? Because you've got Eubank versus Smith, which I didn't feel was a pay-per-view on its own. Like, it's not. Reactport versus Glavatsky, and wherever that leads to Richard, that's got to lead to Richard fighting for a world title if he wins that. And then Parker versus Massey is just absolutely bonkers. Um, former WBO heavyweight champion to fight former IBO cruiserweight champion. And you're like, <laughs> what universe does this make any sense? Now, part of me doesn't believe that fight will happen. And I will give, I'll give my theory now. And if I'm wrong on this, shoot me down. Jack's manager, a guy called Kevin Marie, needs to sell Jack into Sky, right? That's what he needs to do. He needs to sell his client, Jack, into Sky. Sky want to control the cruiserweight division. Jack Massey is an important part of that. So my theory is this. There is another heavyweight right now training and getting in shape. If I'm Michael Hunter right now, making sure I'm ready for January 21st, if I'm any active heavyweight right now, I am making sure I'm ready for January 21st. I don't believe Jack Massey fights Joseph Parker. I think it's bonkers matchmaking and I'm looking forward to it. I just don't believe you'll see that fight. I believe Kevin Marie's gone in there to sell Jack Massey in and he said we'll fight anyone. And Sky B, Johnny Wishby, Ben Shalom or whoever have said, right, Joseph Parker wants to dance partner if you fancy it. And Kevin's probably just gone, yeah, we'll do that to buy credibility. So what will happen in the next two to three weeks, maybe even less, you will see that fight not happen. So if by the 10th of January, Jack Massey is not 16 stone, you know that fight's not happening. So I'm 92.3% I'm confident that fight won't happen. But what it will do is it will say, look at Jack. He was willing to take on Joseph Parker. That buys you credibility with Sky. And when everything kind of settles down and clears up, you then come back and go, right, can we get the react poor rematch? Or can we get a fight with Chris Bidham Smith? That's how you sell yourself into Sky. But I don't see Jack Massey fighting Joseph Parker. So any heavyweights out there listening, or if you know any heavyweights, make sure everyone's in shape for the 21st because you're going to get a call around about the 10th and say, we might need a replacement. That's all I'm prepared to say on that matter. I just have a feeling that business hasn't been conducted as it should have been conducted. And so there may be some bumps in the road in trying to get Massey versus Parker. But if that fight were to happen, just make sure we got UCAN on board because, you know, Joseph Parker was named by Dr. Us as one of the clients. That's just dealing facts. So you can need to keep an eye on all those people that were listed. And I hope they understand their responsibilities to the sport by making sure that, you know, there's the appropriate level of testing for this fight. And I don't want to hear none of this. It's a non-title fight, so there's no testing. This is a fight that should be tested. There should be out of competition testing happening right now. But now I'm intrigued to see what else they're going to put on that card. They'll probably get some local lads, but then it's like, who do you have? You'd almost wish they'd saved Rocky Fielding for, for that event, right? But I don't know. It's, it's, it's intriguing so far. If the Massey fight does go through, then I think those top three 
can kind of hold the pay-per-view together. But I just don't see the Massey fight happening. And I can't say much more than that, to be honest with you. Now, we should also touch on the the developments around Lawrence Ocoli. So Lawrence Ocoli is going to defend his WBO uh, Cruiserweight title live on Sky Sports, promoted by Boxer. Ballsy. That's the only way you can describe what he's doing now. Ballsy. That is 100% ballsy. And let's see if Hearn's, if Hearn's true to his word. Will Eddie Hearn push through with an injunction to stop that fight happening? Or will he let the fight happen and sue Lawrence for breach of contract? Because now we're at the point where now you talk about interference. If, if, there's a still, if there's still a fight left on that matchroom contract, now we're into the realms of interference where we weren't before. If that fight happens on March 11th and matchrooms there, we've still got a fight left. Now you're looking at interference and it could get messy for everyone. But I just have a feeling this, this either has been resolved behind the scenes now or will be resolved behind the scenes with a couple of well-pointed phone calls and a couple of fights that will be made. You know, that's how things generally happen. Dirty laundry doesn't get aired in public because in the process of discovery, you know, the skeletons would fall out the closet. So I think this has probably already been you know, smoothed over and everyone's kind of happy with the state of play now. What else has been happening in the boxing? Ah, um, Frank Martin against Rivera. Hell of a fight. Uh, yeah, people thought Frank Martin might stop him feeling was for my indefinitely that it would go the distance i just think frank martin's quite impressive good combination puncher high volume puncher looks tough strong a nightmare for anyone at lightweight and that's a welcome addition because with tail moving up to 140 at least we've now still got four so we've still got ryan tank devin and now frank martin i think that's good and it gives us balance because i think tank and frank will be pbc Devin's top rank and Ryan is golden boy. And I think that's a good balance to have. So hopefully we can get those fights made and it doesn't involve Eddie Hearn for now. And I think that's really, really good. But yeah, super impressed with Frank Martin. Um, a guy who's kind of bubbled under because we've been so focused on what we thought were the, the new four kings that people hadn't really seen him creeping up. Solid record as well. If you look at his wins, they're solid records. And I think it's, Rivera, God, if I got his name wrong, shoot me again. And Rivera had some respectable names, not the same kind of names, but respectable names. It was 24-0 when he fought. And they're the kind of fights you want to see. I wish we did that more in this country, where our prospects just fought each other and we worked out who we can get behind as boxing fans. So one thing, one thing I'd like to just wrap up on was the Michaela Mayer story on the BBC website. I think it was written by Coral Barry. And... We're, we're treading in very, very dangerous territory right now. I think this has happened a few times this year, was it in the last 12 months, right? So we had Sandy Ryan lose and then tell us she was depressed for, I don't know, a number of weeks. We then had Conor Ben saying, yeah, I failed two drugs tests and yeah, it had me depressed. The, the backlash has got me depressed. And now Michaela Mayer is talking about she lost the fight to Alicia Baumgartner and now she was, you know, she was depressed for like two weeks, whatever the hell she said. 
Now, I'm not the only one. I'm sure the people listening now know people who genuinely have depression. You probably have friends who get depressed where you don't see them for two or three months, not weeks, months. And even when you do, they're still subdued. The depression's ruined their marriages. It's ruined their career prospects. In some cases, it ruined their degree. Real world impacts from having depression. What triggers it, who knows? Is it drugs? Is it a bereavement? Don't know. But the effects are long lasting. It's not two weeks. And it's not because you lost the fight for which you were paid handsomely, by the way. It's not because you lost a fight that you didn't train your best for. You cut corners actively. And it's not caused by failing drugs tests twice. For a substance you, it would appear, voluntarily ingested. So many times you hear about people in boxing talking about depression. I think it's absolutely disgusting. It downplays what depression is. I listened to the Robin Reed podcast with Tris Dixon. And there's a point in there, I think it's with about 30 minutes to go. And Robin genuinely breaks down. I'm not going to say that's depression. I'm going to say that's that emotional release when you realize how dirty the sport is, how little justice you received in the sport. And it's probably just, don't, I mean, in that moment, it all hits him at once. Now, there's a side note to talk about in terms of, I hope Tris Dixon gets the people he interviews the right support afterwards because you can't let someone bear their soul that way and then you move on to whatever's next on your list and then just leave the carnage that you created there. I don't think that's right. There should always be that support and that love because boxing is a family. But guys like Robin Reed, guys like Chris Eubank Sr., who really went through it, like what happened with Michael Watson's no joke, guys like Nigel Benn, with what happened with Gerald McClellan. When they talk about depression, it's real because we saw it. We saw the behavior, we saw the aftermath, and then we saw the rebuild. So for someone like Michaela Mayer, who, to be honest with you, was never that good to begin with. She was manufactured, and had she not been tall, blonde, with blue eyes, whatever color her eyes are, we wouldn't even know Michaela Mayer existed. She's not that good. You know, Alicia Baumgartner must be annoyed that she didn't stop her. So this idea that you deserve to win against someone, I don't understand it. Then to say that you were depressed because you lost is ridiculous. No one has an automatic right to win. Why do these people think they've got a right to win? And more importantly, if you don't like social media and the opinions of the people who watched you fight, maybe boxing's not for you. I'm fed up of people taking from the sport taking and when the times are good they're smiling and it's all this it's all that they're all up on instagram they're all this they're all that sponsored car this oh look at me and bay on vacation all of this stuff happens right people showing us the the starlight effect in the rolls royce they show us the full body tattoos they show us their lifestyle and then they go missing when it turns against them It makes a mockery of the sport for this reason above all else. The people who step in that ring are meant to be tougher than us. They are meant to be special. 
We can't keep saying it takes someone unique to step through those ropes and fight. And then we realize they struggle with real world problems. We can't keep being told that. You're either special or you're not. Michaela May has shown she's not special. And I don't care who this gets to. You don't leverage depression to justify the fact that you weren't good enough. You don't leverage depression as a safe haven so that people can't criticize you for not being good enough. You don't use depression to try and diminish what Alicia Baumgartner achieved. I, th I thought it was low. I thought it disrespected everyone who's really battling with depression. Who hasn't got a fight camp to look forward to. Who hasn't got a six-figure payday to look forward to. What about those people? Too many people in boxing run around crying about stuff. We don't care. We pay money, directly or indirectly, to watch you fight. And we will have an opinion on your performance. That's how it works. Just like you have opinions on other things that you're not qualified to have opinions on. Football the best restaurants, everyone has opinions on stuff that they consume. Boxing just, boxers think they're so, oh my God, you can't criticize me. You don't know what it's like. We don't care. You win or you lose. We will react accordingly. You fail a drugs test, we will react accordingly. You want to get, you want to get your own specialist doctor so you can add loads of weight without gaining body fat. We're going to have an opinion. Don't disappear off social media when it doesn't go your way. Don't, don't disappear off social media when you get exposed. You can't keep sucking on the teat of the fans and then when you don't like it, run away. We ain't going to back those sorts of people. <laughs>